Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Today we get to have Mitchell Weiss with us. And Mitchell is the CTO of Seagrid. Seagrid develops and sells robots that navigate manufacturing distribution centers. They help move stuff around essentially without a human operator. You can check out their videos. They're pretty fun to watch and they've been doing this for a long time. So Mitchell has a wonderful background around robotics and automation, which he can tell us about. He has 23 patents and he's an expert witness in IP litigation. And he has experience with product design and production and selling. So I invited Mitchell on the show to learn more about what he's doing at Seagrid and what he thinks about the future of robotics and automation. So Mitchell, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks, David. It's good to be here. So before we get into the um, kind of what you're up to now, can you give us a little bit of overview on your background? Yeah, it's a fun story I like to tell. <laughs> so when I was 16 years old, which is a long, long time ago in high school, I was reading Isaac Asimov's iRobot. Mm-hmm. And one of my classmates dropped on my desk a flyer for the local science fair and said, you should enter something in the science fair. I said, yeah, I should. And I built a robot. Huh. So at 16, I started building robots. And then when I went off to college, I decided I wanted to get in the robot biz. It was suggested to me I try this funny American school called MIT. I grew up in Canada. So I went to MIT and I wanted to study robots and they thought I was out of my mind because I would never find a job and I studied what I needed to learn and I got in the robot biz. Huh. Interesting. So back so back then MIT was not into robotics. What, there what... were two classes at MIT that covered robotics back wow. in nineteen seventy five. There was one called Making Machines See and Feel which later became called Robot Manipulation and Vision. And there was another one called, uh, I think it was Robotics or something to that effect. And that course wasn't even offered by the time I was able to take it. Mm, that's crazy. I bet they have a few more now. <laughs> Probably have. Yeah, I think so. 50. And weren't you a, a lecturer at one point at MIT before Seagrid? Yeah. Um, well, I've worked as a part-time lecturer at Pitt, Penn, and MIT, depending on where I was living at the time. And I have lectured at MIT in the machine design course, you know, the class where the kids make little machines that compete against each other. Cool. And and what what did you do after graduating from a MIT? What were some uh, companies you worked for, well, or projects for- you worked on? first company I went to work for was Unimation, which was, as all your listeners should know, the first robot company on the planet. It was founded in 1959 by Joe Engelberger and, uh, oh, golly, I forget his name, George Duvall. George Duvall invented the Unimate. Joe Engelberger was the entrepreneur. 61, they installed the first robot. And I went to work there in 79 when I got out of school. And I was the first applications engineer on the Puma robot, which was their first all-electric computer-controlled robot. And I left Unimation and started a company called the United States Robots in 1980 with another ex-Unimation employee. And at the time, we were the fifth robot company in the U.S. 
in wow. 1981. Wow. There were eight or 20 of them. It was crazy. Huh. So it was around 1980 that the industry really took off and rode that wave, sold that company in 82, started a material handling company in 85 that made material handling equipment for the semiconductor industry. And we sold that to PRI in Boston in 93, and we became the number one supplier of automation equipment to the semiconductor industry worldwide. Wow. And after that, I secret in 2004. Gotcha. Okay. And out of all those experiences, you know, what was a, a memorable project, whether good or bad, that you went uh, and what you learned from it? Well, everyone's a, a, a learning opportunity. Um, and there were really two big things that got learned. One was the robot business is really hard. <laughs> at least it's really hard to, <laughs> to, to, win big at. It's not a unicorn kind of business like coming up with a web app where you can do it in your garage by yourself because you've got to bring all this mechanical, electrical, and probably most importantly domain knowledge about the customer's problem to the business. And so it's hard to do. And it's a it's a hard thing to get adoption on because it's not a consumer product. It's a business business product. And so the users are industrial users who have to change their process and flow to use the stuff. So that's hard to do. That's all hard. That's the biggest learning. Uh, probably the, the, I mean, every time I come up with something new or invent something new, it's kind of fun and exciting. But I guess the first robot we designed and built at U.S. Robots in 1980 yeah, that's sort of a benchmark. What did those Especially do? the first time you see it work. What what, mm-hmm. the, what did those ro- robots do? It, it was an industrial manipulator. It was a human-scale uh, robot for loading and unloading machines and doing precision assembly work and stuff. So we had them, some of the applications we had. Uh, we were moving silicon wafers around. We were stuffing circuit boards. We were doing mechanical wow. assemblies, building smoke detectors, things like that. And and how is robotic design and development now compared to back in 1980 um, as far as uh, ease of development? Yeah, well, it's obviously a much easier yeah. environment to develop in now. Um, we at, at U.S. Robots, we had to design our own motion controllers, our own power amplifiers for the motors. Wow. Uh, we had to work with the manufacturers of the motors and the gear trains and things to debug their manufacturing processes. It just wasn't a mature market yet. Interesting. Um, one of the products I worked on before that, Summer Job, was on the space shuttle and working on the arm on the space shuttle. The space shuttle flew with core memory in the computer. Your readers who don't remember, core memory are little ferrite donuts with wires going through them, and each one represented a bit. So the memory that flew on the space shuttle in the 70s was essentially mechanical. Interesting. You couldn't fly semiconductors into space because they couldn't handle the radiation. Huh. Well, 
so it's a, it's a lot easier now. <laughs> yes, yes, and we've had some people on who are trying to help them make it easier. Um, but yeah, so we could I mean, yeah, the whole podcast could be on your background. You've done a lot of interesting things, but let's talk about the Seagrid and what sure. you know what uh, what prompted you to join Seagrid and you know, wh- when was uh, Seagrid started and then when did you uh, join? The Seagrid started in two thousand three, and it's based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It's a spinoff from Carnegie Mellon. I joined in early two thousand and four. And what prompted me to join was the thing that Seagrid does. So while what we deliver to our customers are self-driving vehicles for use in factories and distribution centers and warehouses, what we're based on is the software. And the software approach that Hans Morbeck, who's one of our founders and was formerly the director of the mobile robot lab at CMU, who built his first robot before I built my first robot. So he's been in the business 10 years longer than I have. Um, our navigation technology and our vision technology is all based on statistics. So it has a mathematical basis as opposed to heuristics, which is just algorithmic. And when I came to visit in Pittsburgh with Hans, and he explained to me how his system works based on statistics, I got excited. And, you know, that's kind of super nerdy, geeky detail. But artificial intelligence work for years was wrapped around clever tricks, meaning heuristics, and was not succeeding. And here Hans was able to explain to me that he had this process for doing navigation and vision that was based on statistical methods and I said well that's pretty convincing we should make that work and and what's the can you give an example what's the difference between using the algorithm approach versus statistics sure um, the way our system works is it captures a lot of images in the environment it processes those images and it finds a lot of features in the environment so if you look around the room you're in the edge of the light switch, the edge of the door frame. Those are a bunch of specific features. They don't have a lot of meaning like a door or a ceiling tile, but you might have the edge of the tile, the edge of the, the ceiling. So if you're using a heuristic and you're trying to navigate, you might tell the system, okay, I've computed that this thing is a door and you're three feet from the door. If you're using statistics, we don't care that it's a door. We just care that there's a bunch of obvious features around it. And I'm not going to try and interpret what they are. But if I grab enough of those features, so the door frames, the corners of the room, stains on the carpet, ceiling tiles, light fixtures, you know, just a lot of random edges in the room, and I don't figure out what they are, I just have to measure my distances and identify where I am with respect to that pattern of points, hmm. which is represented as a bunch of math. So I now have a system that's very robust because it's based on large amounts of data. And I haven't parsed it into things that are important to humans because humans don't work that way. Right? We don't process lots of statistical data to figure out where we are. We say, oh, we're near the door. 
So that's the big difference. And that is it's very computationally intensive, but it's very good for what computers are good at. Huh. Interesting. And so yeah, I have a lot more questions about that. But uh, first, could you just give a kind of a brief overview on C grid? If, if if you know, sure. you know the number of employees and the products that yep. you offer. And, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So C grids in Pittsburgh. We have about a hundred people working here. Uh, we've got people in Europe and scattered around the U.S. in the sales and support side and stuff. There's about a hundred people in the company. Starting in 2003, our core business is what we call 3D perception, which is the software side of our business. And what we do with that is we currently take things like industrial tow tractors or industrial pallet trucks or forklift kind of trucks, and we add <clears throat> components to those, which include our home-brewed stereo cameras. We make our own stereo ranging cameras. Hmm. Uh, computing platforms, safety systems, and we turn those industrial trucks into driverless trucks. So it's actually a truck that you can get on and drive, move around just like a manual version, but you can also step off it and send it somewhere on its own. The reason we did it that way was we didn't want to be in the truck and vehicle making business. That's a commodity business. There are other people who do that really well. What we wanted to do was be in the give the truck brains business. So we have all our stereo ranging cameras and the ability to build maps that the vehicles navigate around and then the tools you need on the truck so that people can easily use it. So our system is a teach repeat system. We call it walk through then work. You move the truck along a path through the facility and we can store up to 15, 20 miles worth of paths on a truck. Mm -hmm. And once you've driven it around once, it can repeat that. Wow. So it's a very simple show it the job once, and then it does the job again. And the vehicles navigate within a couple of inches of the desired path. When you have a lot of our vehicles in the building, you need to coordinate their activity. So for that, we have another product that's called Supervisor. So all the vehicles navigate on their own, but they coordinate their activity by talking over the facility Wi-Fi back to supervisor. And supervisor coordinates where they're going when one truck can go through an intersection, another truck has to stop. And we do all of that without adding any infrastructure to the customer. So one of the big advantages of using our vision system and the way we train the trucks, when we come to an intersection, we just tell the truck, this is an intersection. I don't have to stick a traffic light in or a hmm. gate or a switch or a doorway. The truck knows this location in space is an intersection. I will ask for permission to go through it before I go through it the next time. So we literally can take one of our vehicles to a customer site, turn it on, run a route. Maybe the route's 100 meters or 1,000 meters long and repeat that route within minutes of showing it that route. And, in fact, that's how we demo to our customers. Huh. So you, so you don't have to map anything. I mean, the, the mapping is just drive around the truck, and it'll memorize right. essentially its position. So how does it yeah, memorize correct. its position? What What's uh, what is it? Is it using the um, 
like sensors on board, the Wi-Fi signals, or how does it uh, figure out the So mapping? it's all based on the vision system. It's all based so on, on each truck, on each truck, there's five stereo cameras. So there's ten imagers altogether arranged as five stereo cameras. And with the stereo camera, you know, look out your left eye and your right eye, blink in one eye, and you'll see things shifting right to left because of the parallax. So the difference in the two images is called the disparity. So based on the disparity between points in the image, you know how far away those points are. So imagine you don't have two eyes on the front of your head, but you have two on the front, two on the back, two on each side, and two on the top. That's what we have on our vehicles. <clears throat> There's a thing called the Vision Guidance Unit and has these five stereo cameras on it. And it's looking all around the truck at 360 degrees and above and below the truck, almost at 360. Can't see through its own feet. As the truck is driving, as we're training it, it's taking pictures. It's taking stereo pictures. And then it processes the data in those stereo pictures. And for every snapshot that it takes, it finds... 1,000 to 2,000 features hmm. in each snapshot of five camera sets. It then builds those features into the 3D map. And that's where all the statistics come in because we build them into a map in a thing that's called an evidence grid, which is actually a statistical probabilistic representation of the space. So again, we're not trying to show a, a picture of every column and beam in the building we're just showing a random sampling of a lot of important points in the building. So once you've built that whole 3D map, you take the vehicle to a start position, you send it to a destination by pushing a, a button on the user interface. <clears throat> and then as it's driving to that destination, it's continuing to take these snapshots in all five stereo cameras, and it's comparing its position to where it is in the map. So it has an idea roughly where it is. It looks at those thousands of points in the images. It compares the fits of those points to the map. And it says, oh yeah, I'm within 20 millimeters of where I should huh. be. And that's how it works. What if those points... The, the... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, what if those points in the map change? You know, like They go through and you know, a barrel was there was was there before and now it's not would it how does it not get confused there's the, <laughs> there's the big one of statistics so because we're capturing points in 360 degrees and we're capturing thousands of them on each glimpse if you move a bunch of stuff around in the building there's still enough stuff to tell you where your best fit is hmm. and your location is if you're using a LiDAR-based approach, where someone's using a 2D LiDAR scanner or even a 3 or 4 or 5-beam scanner, they're only able to collect dozens of points. And so if you move a pallet of goods, they lose a lot of their reference position. Now they can't do a good analysis of where they are. So that's the advantage of vision. We capture so much data in a single <coughs> electronic event, right? that if we apply a lot of statistical processing to that data, we have a very robust understanding of where we are, even if the environment's changing. And in 
all facilities were in the environment's changing. But it's not changing enough that it looks like a different planet. Hmm. So that that's pretty interesting. What so what advice would you have to the self-driving car companies? Because, I mean, they're taking a little different approach, it seems like. Yeah. Um, the Most of the self-driving car companies are wrapping their uh, success around LiDAR technology, which is better at ranging discrete points, but not as good as capturing lots of data quickly. We think, and some people are saying this, Elon Musk is saying it, a few others are saying it in the industry, that they should start looking towards camera technologies. And we think that's something they should be looking at as well. And we think it's something we might be able to contribute to. The other advice I have for the auto industry, and I'm on record for, uh, we spend a lot of time working on the safety systems around our vehicles. So we've run over 450,000 miles with our vehicles, and we've never hit a person. Wow. Never injured a person. Wow. And there are industry standards in our industry, in the unmanned guided vehicle business, industrial unmanned guided vehicles, that require us to do detailed risk analysis and risk mitigation plans and designs of systems to international standards of electrical reliability. I think the auto industry better start working harder on that stuff. Hmm. You know, just putting these things out in the field and hoping that you don't hurt people and learning from it is a dangerous way to do it. Definitely. And are you guys doing anything? And maybe this is confidential in the self-driving industry right now. We're continuing to develop our technology, improving it at the time. One of the advantages to how we do stuff being so compute intensive and being based on camera technology is as the technology improves in the marketplace because of the ubiquity in cameras and phones and the power of processing, yeah. we're continuing to be able to do better precision, higher range, higher density data. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that was a pretty smart idea about uh, 13 years ago <laughs> you guys had. Yeah. And, so, and, well, one of the things that Hans Moravik did, you, you can look him up, Yeah. is when he started working on this stuff in the 70s at Stanford AI, he went to look to see how long it would take, how fast computing power was improving, you know, based on Moore's Law, the doubling every year thing. But he compared it to biological systems. And somewhere around 2000, he kind of came to the decision that the time was right mm-hmm. for given dollars worth of computing, you can compute this kind of stuff. And we've been very adamant from a product development perspective to make sure that everything we do is not based on being clever or inventive, even though we invent and we do clever things, but that it's based on the benefits we can get from improvements in computer power. Mm-hmm. That's why we say we're more a software perception company than a hardware company. Because if something's really hard to do today, in five years, it'll be mainstream. So we might as well do the hard things. Mm-hmm. That's a good way. Good way to look at it. Um, and 
and I know we're we're almost out of time here, but I got a, a couple more questions if that's okay. And uh, one of them is about kind of a use case. So you know, let's say you're in a warehouse, and okay. we're, we're going away from the technical to the <laughs> the practical. But uh, sure. so somebody would uh, load up a, a pallet truck, and then off it would go. Is that how it could work, or? <laughs> That's one of the use cases. So there's two big use cases okay. we have. One's in the distribution and warehousing space. So most people don't know it because it's so invisible to us. But if you go to your local grocery store, they're getting a truckload of pallets every day. And that truckload of pallets is coming from some local distribution center. And there are tens of thousands of these in the country where your groceries get stacked up on the pallets and sent to the store, and then they get put on the shelves. Those distribution centers are half a million to million square foot facilities all over the country. There are all those buildings that look like white corrugated steel or just white windowless buildings that you see along the highway tucked behind the trees. <clears throat> In those buildings, there are guys driving forklift trucks from the loading dock, putting pallets away on shelves. They're taking the pallets off shelves and putting them back out at the loading dock. And they're traveling maybe, you know, 20, 30 miles a day on their forklift truck. Hmm. Every minute they're driving that truck around, it's costing a lot of money. So our customers actually measure their savings in how many cents per pallet they save moving them around. And if you're moving 10,000 pallets a day, you're saving a lot of money. That's how the grocery industry works. You do a lot of stuff. In manufacturing, so that's a win we have in distribution. Anywhere people move materials around big facilities, we move them without a driver. Pretty simple. Use case. In the manufacturing space, when you're building a car or a plane or a washing machine, and this is public record, so we're in a washing machine factory where we have 52 of our vehicles running. <clears throat> so they're all coordinated with supervisors, and they're all pulling carts of parts to the assembly line where the employees are building over 20,000 washing machines a day. Wow. So from a central storage area, parts are continually being brought out to the line and delivered just in time to where the people need them to build washing machines. So that's 50 tuggers running around carrying carts of goods instead of 50 forklift drivers with people driving them. And oh, by the way, the number one cause of industrial accidents in the U.S. that result in death are forklift accidents. Really? Wow. So in that, yeah, a person every three days in the U.S. roughly oh, wow. dies. So in that washing machine facility, their motivation to moving to automatic vehicles was a safety motivation. Turned out it saves them a whole bunch of money because there's 50 trucks driving around on their own. But their objective was to reduce the risk of injury. Hmm. Seems like a no-brainer. Big... Oh, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. No, those are the two biggies, taking parts to where people need them or putting parts away somewhere. And do you uh, publicly uh, disclose the, the cost for the vision system to 
I, nope. I guess that's kind of a loaded question is the problem because there's, there's so many variables. All right, fair enough. I probably wouldn't yeah. either. Cause... So, so we don't sell the vision system on its own. We just sell the vehicles. Oh, okay. And yeah. we sell them in such a way that if a customer has an application, say some car companies setting up a car production line, <clears throat> they'll come to us. We send in applications engineers who work with them on the material flow requirements they have. We'll figure out how many vehicles they need, and then we'll quote them the price for how much that is. Makes sense. Makes sense. And a magical secret so we can make money at it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So last question, I promise, is uh, yeah, I'm curious you know, where you want to take the technology at Seagrid over the next five years or whatever time makes sense. Um, how do you want to improve sure. it, and what's necessary to make that happen? So there's kind of a two-step answer to that. Robotics, and in our case, material handling technology, has been around for a long time, and its main mission is to reduce the mindless jobs that people have so they can do more mindful jobs. Um, and we work very closely to people, right? We're delivering goods to and taking them away from people, so we have to have all the safety systems and stuff. Okay, that's step A. Step B, it's turning out that with the growth of e-commerce and all these large fulfillment centers going in, there is not enough labor in the country to fill those jobs. You can't get people in all these little towns. They have a big distribution center that's feeding a 100-mile radius to deliver your next day peanut butter sandwich from Amazon or something. So it's going to require giving our machines the ability to do more than go from A to B. They're going to have to be able to pick up the goods themselves, select the goods, maybe grab a whole case of goods or do something. So a lot of the development we're going to do in the future is around what we call manipulation, load handling, whether it's with robot arms on vehicles or just the forks picking up forks or whatever that's doing. So it's a big part of it is giving the machines more smarts and more autonomy, not just in terms of path following, but in terms of following a function. And there are other things we can do with the perception technology in three-dimensional space in terms of building maps, using them, applying it to other industries that we don't talk about a lot. So it's really about leveraging this ability to if you think about what people can do by looking around and walking around, then you go to the next step of what they can do. Well, now let them start to interact with the environment because they know where they are and they know what they have to do. That makes sense. And that would give you a, the entire process from picking up the goods to delivering to the line. Yeah, that would be pretty amazing. Right. That's, a, that's not an easy the problem. Store shelf. Yeah, that's not an easy problem, but uh, it's a big one. And it's not one you get into the business and expect to solve in a year. No. It's one of the other interesting things about the whole robotics and automation space. You better have a 20-year plan in your mind. No, that makes sense. All right, well, that's a good... I like the, I like your vision. That's probably a good place to end this podcast. And But, uh, Mitchell, definitely appreciate your time and your thoughts. And you've had a large amount of experience, and we're, we feel honored that you could share it with us. 
you're easily honored then. <laughs> thanks for your time. And it was, it, 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 it was great fun telling stories. Definitely. And, uh, yes, we definitely appreciate it. And, uh, thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Flyover Labs. As always, I really appreciate it. And, uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Mitchell. Thanks everyone. <laughs>